Please find your seats. The time has come. We'll begin Sunday school. So good to see all of you. Just like when you attend church in the rain, when you attend church and it's cold outside, you get an extra blessing from the Lord. So extra points in heaven, warmer mansion, right? So if you don't attend church when it rains, you might have a leaky roof in heaven. Uh, I'm sure it's in there somewhere. Question three of the catechism. I want you to think logically about where we've come uh, in the catechism. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Very good. Uh, question two, what rule has God given that we may know how to glorify and enjoy him? And the word of God as contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule faith and practice. Thank you. So logically, it would make sense then that we ask the question, well, if scripture is our only rule of faith and practice, if scripture is what teaches us how to know how to glorify God and enjoy him forever, then we ought to know what do the scriptures teach? And so that's question three. What do the scriptures principally teach? And so let's answer together. The scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. One of the implications of this is that uh, a church, court, church officers, church authority, pastors, elders, deacons, cannot bind your conscience. This is written into our constitution. We cannot bind your conscience. So. Let's give a hypothetical situation. So let's say Bob is a church member here. We don't have any church members named Bob, do we? Not Bobby. Let's say Joe is a member here, and Joe is, let's use an extreme example. Uh, I don't know. Let's say that Joe has a habit of shooting people in the toe. All right, a ridiculous example. All right, so he has a habit of shooting people in the toe. And, and Joe comes before the session, and the session says, Joe, you have shot five people in the toe at church. You can't do that. This is violating God's law. And let's say he looks at the session and says, you can't bind my conscience. If I want to shoot people in the toe, I will. What's the session going to say? Well, you're right. There's no Bible verse that says, Thou shalt not shoot thy neighbor in the toe. So go ahead and do it. What will we say? Case closed, huh? None of you are eligible to be ruling elders in church if you can't answer this question, right? So we would say, look, Scripture calls us to protect and value life. And shooting someone in the toe violates that scripture calls you you're obligated to protect life are we binding his conscience what has bound his conscience scripture so we have to make this distinction then right christian liberty does not mean 
that our life and actions and behavior can violate Scripture. Scripture always binds our conscience. And in fact, and this is all ties in together with the lesson today, the authority that God has given his church officers is ministerial and declarative. What that means is that we declare God's word. This is the word of the Lord. And we call the congregation, we call God's people to obey it. We are tying their conscience to God's word. And assure them that when they fall short, when we fall short, God's word also provides for us an assurance of his gracious pardon. What good news that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is our only rule of faith and practice. We thank you that it teaches us what we are to believe concerning you and what duty you require of us. Be with us now as we study church government. Be with our conversation. May it be edifying to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Does Scripture prescribe a form of church government? What do you think? Yes, okay, it does. Seems the consensus in the room is yes. What form of government does Scripture prescribe? Oh, now we have just upped the ante, haven't we? Is it an Episcopal form of government? Is it a Presbyterian form of government? Is it a congregational form of government? Is it something else? What would you say would be the biblical argument that you would make for the type of government that God has prescribed in Scripture? What would be a, a biblical argument that you would make for the type of church government Scripture prescribes? Quick answers. Genesis. Moses. Okay. Moses and 70 elders. Absolutely. Hold that thought. It's a good observation. We're going to come back to that. What else? Acts. Instructions in Timothy. Can you think of some examples in Acts? Deacons. Jerusalem Council. Acts 6. Acts 15. What's that? Titus. What's Paul tell Titus? This is the reason that I left you in Crete, that you might go and appoint what is lacking in the churches, appointing elders in every city. Yeah, what else? The example of heaven. In this present evil age, as the clerk said, the General Assembly, there are Baptists and Episcopalians and Methodists and Pentecostals and Anglicans. But when we all gather together at that great General Assembly in the sky, under our chief elder, the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll all be Presbyterian. So we would make the argument that Scripture prescribes a Presbyterian form of church government. Some context is helpful here when you know about the English Reformation in the 16th century and England's break from the Roman Catholic Church. 
So 1517, Martin Luther in Germany begins the, the Reformation of the church. Um, this spreads over into England. Uh, the context of the split from the Roman Catholic Church in England, what king? Who was king? Henry VIII. Henry VIII. And what did Henry VIII want that he could not get from the Roman Catholic Church? A divorce. He could not... He could not get it. And so what did he do? He established his own church. Not just changed the rules, he established his own church, a church of England. And so those who are working to establish this church, like Cromwell, they use this as an opportunity to reform. That's what they do. They use this as an opportunity to reform. By the time we come to the 17th century, there are three factions in, in England. There is the Church of England. There are the Puritans who would say that the, church, that the, the, the Reformation that ha- occurred in the establishment of the Church of England did not go far enough. Okay, that's essentially the, the logic of the Puritans. And then there were the Scottish Covenanters who said... If you try to force your church on us, we will fight you to the death. And they made a solemn league and covenant in blood, is what the Scottish Covenanters did. So the, huh? Christians, Presbyterians, thank William Wallace, kilts. That's right, they would not allow bloody mary to make scotland catholic again mm-hmm. yeah so the english long parliament in the middle of the 1600s they call an assembly of divines which was another word for theologians to uh to essentially unify the groups under one national church and what do they do well they create They create the Westminster Confession of Faith with the catechisms and also a directory for worship. Was this ever adopted by the Church of England? No. Who adopted it? The Scottish Covenanters when they established the Free Church of Scotland. That was the adopt, it's called the Adopting Act. They adopted this as their theological standards. And what form of church government would the divine suggest? Episcopal, which was the Church of England, Presbyterian, or Congregational? Presbyterian is the argument. Presbyterian. So let's look at a robust orthodoxy from the Confession, chapter 30, paragraphs 1 and 2. The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, hath therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers, distinct from the civil magistrate. We could talk about the distinct from the civil magistrate. That's a conversation for another day. For the purpose of this lesson, I want you to key in on appointed a government in the hand of whom? The church officers. The church officers. To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. What do they do with them? To shut the kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, 
and to open it unto penitent sinners by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures as occasion shall require. All of this is ministerial and declarative. There are not stocks and brigades in the church for when church members disobey. Okay, there are no church floggings. Right. What they do is operate ministerially and declarative, declaring forth God's word and calling people to obey it and using the keys of the kingdom to shut the church by way of censures, the most, most severe being an excommunication, where we say, because of the fruit in your life, we do not recognize you as a member of the visible church. And we close the kingdom to them. Chapter 31, paragraph 1, for the better government and further edification of the church, there ought to be such assemblies as are commonly called synods or councils. It belongeth to the overseers and other rulers of particular churches by virtue of their office and the power which Christ hath given them to appoint such assemblies. What they are doing is they are recognizing a plurality of eldership in the church. And so the idea is that these synods are called to gather together the officers of the different churches to meet together to rule on certain matters. Okay? Um, we did that yesterday in Brunswick. We had the 81st stated presbytery meeting of the Savannah River Presbytery. We're a presbytery of about 20 churches and the a representative ruling elders and the respective teaching elders of those congregations gathered together in Brunswick yesterday to do just what you read right there. 31.2 teaches that the decisions made, if consonant to the word of God, are to be received with reverence and submission, not only for their agreement with the word, but also for the power whereby they are made as being an ordinance of God appointed thereunto in his word. We are to obey the lawful injunctions of the higher courts. So we submit ourselves to our brethren. This is in the ordination vows that church officers take. Will you submit to your brothers? You have to be able to vow that you will and that the rule of the court you will abide by that. Now, does that mean that you, you have to obey everything they say? No, they're lawful injunctions. Does that mean you have to just accept it even though it's wrong? Well, no, there's ways to appeal, complain, file an objection, a dissent, a protest. There's certain things that you can do to object to a decision by the court or to carry that decision to a higher court, to ask them to reconsider it. But at the end of the day, when the smoke settles and the dust settles, you have to submit to what the court decides. All right, that's what it's getting at. There's this rich and robust orthodoxy that the divines give us. However, as our, our book makes the argument, they're pretty silent on the orthopraxy side. Okay, great, we get it. How are we to carry this out? Well, the divines rejected popery, is that how you would say that? Popery, a pope or bishop of Rome, being the head of the visible church, they reject that. They reject prelacy, prelacy, that one man is preferred and set over others, 
essentially a bishop. They reject Brownism, that every church is self-governing. So this radical sort of self-independence, autonomous churches, the divines rejected that. That's a view called Brownism. They also rejected Erastianism, a view that the state is superior to the church in ecclesiastical matters. They rejected that as well. And so the debate was primarily about, is the form of government prescribed in Scripture Presbyterian or congregational? What's the difference? You understand Presbyterian, rule by plurality of elders, to the church officers have been given the keys of the kingdom. How does a congregational list government differ from an independent church? It, it comes down to this question of who holds the keys. So it's not that the congregationalists, and there were congregationalists at the Westminster Assembly, it's not that they rejected having higher courts or having a plurality of elders, but for the congregationalists like John Owen, the argument was that the keys of the kingdom have not been given to the elders of the church, but that the keys of the kingdom have been given to the congregation of the church. All right. So, let me ask you a question. In the American political system, when you elect a representative, congressman, who do they represent in the exercise of their office? Or who should they represent? The body that elected them, their constituents. They should represent those who elected them, right? And so you have a right to call upon them and say, hey, listen, we pay your salary. I pay your salary. Um, and we have a, a, a right to call them to represent the needs of the districts that they represent in their respected offices. The elders that you elect, whom do they represent in their office as elder? God, so they represent scripture. Huh? It's kind of a trick question. It is. No one wants to answer. You just kind of, kind of see. Everyone's like, I don't know. Is it both? So I had a, um, uh, no, I won't tell that story. Uh, would it be okay for a church member here to go to an elder and say, hey, listen, when you meet with the session and this item of business comes before the session, you need to understand that you should vote this way because this best represents the needs of the church. <laughs> the elder does not represent the congregation's authority in their office. 
The elder in his office represents the authority of Christ. That's the Presbyterian argument of church government. The keys are not held by the congregation and donated to the elders to rule among them. The keys of the kingdom are donated from Christ to the elders of the church to represent his desires in the church immediately, representatively, to the best of their ability. So it's a question of does, does, where does the authority flow from? Up from the congregation or down from Christ? That's the debate between the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. Matthew 16, it's a scripture with which you're probably all well acquainted. Jesus tells Peter upon his confession, uh, you are Peter. Uh, On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Whom did Peter represent when Jesus gave him the keys? Or, or to whom was Jesus giving the keys, I should say? Was he giving the keys to Peter as the first pope of the church? There are millions of people who believe that. Uh, was Jesus giving the keys to Peter as the first elder of the church? Or was Jesus giving the keys to Peter as the first member of the church? Hold the thought about the Old Testament. I'm going to tie that observation with Michelle's here in a moment. We're going to come to that. If the power does not belong to the people in some sense, then the officers cannot represent the church. On the other side lurk the danger of Anabaptist democracy or member rule. So you do have a right as a congregation. You are exercising something when you vote for church officers. When you call them, you are exercising some sort of authority. All right. So if there's too much of a radical separation, then those who serve among you don't represent you. And you end up with a pope or a bishop. However, if there's too much authority rested with the congregation then the congregation is the highest court and whatever the majority rules in the local congregation, that's it. That's the end of the matter. The church has a kind of passive and active power is what the Puritans said. The church's power is passive in their submission to the elders. The church's power is active in their testing of all things and electing their officers. The elder's power is proper in holding the keys of the church. So there's a distinction that we make in the kind of power that's being exercised in the church. The congregation of the church, the membership of the church, the laity of the church, they are exercising a certain kind of power, but it is active and passive. It is not power in the proper sense, is the distinction that the Puritans made. Let's understand this proper power. There is the object and the subject of power. 
The visible church is the object of the power that Christ gives the power. So, where do the elders exercise their power? In the local church. That's the object of the power. The subjects are those who receive the power for binding and loosing. Furthermore, we make a distinction about donation and designation. The elders' power to rule in the church is not on donation from the congregation, but on donation from Christ. The elders' power to rule the church is designated by Christ to rule immediately on his behalf. It's a very humbling thing to, to, to really grasp with that as you consider the office of elder. It really is. That, I, you know, the, the, you just, you let the gravity of that settle in on you and it, it can be quite crushing because you, you realize that this is not something that you're doing because you're worthy, deserving, earned it, attained to it. It's, it's not any of those things. It's by the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the, the recognition of the congregation saying, Lord, we see whom you have placed in our congregation, and we will affirm that and call that one to serve amongst our midst. So there, there is a, a, wait, a weightiness to that. But it also, there's a freeing aspect to that as well, because you know that if the Lord will use Balaam's jackass, he can use, he can use a, a, an elder like me in the church. So it's also freeing as well. Ben? It's a great question. The answer is yes. There is a process in place. The congregation's rights are preserved. Yep. Um, they would get the book of church order and study it carefully. There, there's a whole mechanism in place. Yes, absolutely. Yep, absolutely. John? You're really trying to stir the pot with the women elders question. You, go ahead. I don't know. I had to think about that. I don't. I don't know. I have to think about that. Right, because not all men. What we're saying is that that our our view of complementarianism is not only men are eligible to hold office. That's not our view in complementarianism. Our view is only qualified men are eligible to hold office who are called by the congregation. So being male does not automatically qualify you to hold office in the church. You, you and John, you get your own Sunday school class, Beth. 
Victor? The priesthood of believers. Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's so the argument, the argument of the priesthood of all believers that I hear from, I hate to, in this congregationalist, we're, we're using the same word, but it means something different to the Puritans at Westminster than it does in our context today. Okay, so it's a, it's a bit different. But to answer the question, the priesthood of all believers argument is, um, would reach its logical conclusion of there are no church officers because although because of the priesthood of all believers everyone it's like it's the Mennonite argument right there are no pastors in a Mennonite church they rotate and people get up and open the Bible and speak they just rotate so because because of the priesthood of all believers the distinction of ordination is eradicated okay so what I would appeal to is that the teaching and the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers relates to the worship of the congregation. That you don't have, uh, you don't have an intermediary, a human intermediary in your worship. So you are a kingdom of priests, as Peter says, because Christ is your, he is your mediary, and you worship directly through his mediation. All right, that is my understanding of the doctrine of priesthood of all believers. It does not erase our distinctions of ordination, however. Travis. Are you name dropping? We don't hang out with John and Gibson like you do. We call him Dr. Gibson. We're not on a Johnny kind of basis with Dr. Gibson. Call that a Presbytery. Well, that was the point. The point was, I was young Johnny, so Dr. Gibson told the man, you, you know, Johnny. You know, we call it Presbyterian. Yeah. We are not Presbyterian. But his government was the same government. Yeah.
It's congregationalist, right? It's not independent, right? I don't think that the modern-day Southern Baptist Convention is independent in the, in the proper sense, right? It's a question of who holds the keys of the church, all right? So there's, there's the point of disagreement, I think, between the Southern Baptist Convention and, like, the PCA. So the PCA would say that the elders hold the keys, and the Southern Baptists would say the congregation holds the keys. And so there is still some sort of recognition of higher authority over them. Yes. That's just, now that's. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good points. Let's move forward here. Uh, so the Presbyterian view is that there's one visible universal church so we would say that in the presbyterian view the church is universal visible and political kingdom comprised of those who profess the true religion and of their children the congregationalist view is that there's no other visible church of christ acknowledged but only a single congregational meeting in one place to partake of all ordinances so in the Presbyterian view, what we're saying is we are one part of a whole. We, we are one outpost of the church here and part of the whole. I am running out of time. That's okay. This has been a good discussion. I would just, you know, I would appeal to where we would make that argument is we would definitely look at Acts chapter 15. The Puritans considered that the first presbytery. Uh, we talk about the church in Jerusalem, but we clearly see that it was comprised of several churches. We see that in Titus, the church in Crete, it's comprised of several churches. And so the idea is that when we, we can speak correctly about the church in the singular sense and understand a plurality of churches, all right? So when we understand the nature of the church, what are we saying when we say in the Apostles' Creed, one holy Catholic apostolic church? Catholic means universal. We're not affirming that the Romish church is the true church. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is that the church has a universal nature in that. And in fact, we would even argue that, that, the, that the church includes the church of all all redemptive period, all history, okay? So even going back into the Old Testament, we would say the Old Testament church had church officers. They had elders. They had priests. So we would identify that, that God has always exercised his authority in the church through the offices that he gives to the church. We would even say that we're part of the church uh, victorious in heaven as well, wouldn't we? We're part of the church together. What's the hymn say? Mystic sweet communion. 
with those whose rest is one. Right? So we're, what is our understanding of the nature of the church? Is it the church, it, when we say we believe in one true church, are we saying that we're the only true church right here at New Covenant? Well, there are cults that believe that. Right? There are cults that believe that. But that's not what we're saying. We are recognizing ourselves as but one part of the whole true church. It's the reason why we have open communion. It's the table of the Lord. We recognize that if you come from another true church and you're here at New Covenant when the Lord's Supper is being served, welcome to the table, brother or sister. Why? Because it's not New Covenant's table. It's the reason why we would recognize the baptism, as long as it was performed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with water by a lawfully ordained minister. It's the reason we would recognize a baptism from another denomination. Why? We're not the only church, right? We're but one part of the whole, even with those churches with whom we have disagreement. Any questions on that? thoughts? Let me just touch briefly on the Puritans and the offices in the church. On page four, as part of their case against prelacy and popery, the Puritans set forth the basic nature and function of each office in the local church. Whether Presbyterian or Congregationalist, the local church required ministers, elders, and deacons to function according to the pattern found in the New Testament. Because Puritan theologians were covenant theologians, the concept of the church was not confined to the New Covenant dispensation, but had its beginning with Adam in Genesis. Isn't that interesting? Michelle and Nick, there's the comment, right? There's the tie-in. Thus, the offices of the church are not altogether new to the gospel era of the church, but are rooted in the Old Testament. Isn't that interesting? The Puritans would say that the church officers, uh, they had a Trinitarian ecclesiology. The Trinity distributes the gifts to the church, including the church officers. It's a work and function of the triune God. The church officers, they would comment, are also the legacy of Christ, given his ascension. So we would point to a passage like Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, uh, the shepherds, and teachers. And even in Book of Church Order 7-5, it's off the top of my head because we recently argued about this yesterday, uh, we would argue that in Ephesians 4-11 that some of those offices, offices are extraordinary, like apostle and prophet. They're extraordinary, I should say extraordinary for the establishment of the church with extraordinary gifts to establish the church. And so Book of Church Order 7-5 recognizes that once the church is established, the extraordinary offices of apostle and prophet cease. And now what we have are the ordinary offices. The Puritans fought for uh, pastors elders, bishops, two types of elders, those who belong to the power of the order and those who belong to the power of the jurisdiction. What is all that? The power of the order belongs to the ordinances of the church. 
the, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, those are the ordinances of the church. Marriage would be an ordinance of the church, not a sacrament, but an ordinance. And there are also those who have the power of jurisdiction, those who rule in the local church. We don't have bishops because we believe that the bishop is, in the Bible, episkopos, is used interchangeably with the word for elder. And we see this in a place like Titus 1, 1 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, that you uh, appoint what? Elders in every town as I directed you. So you see the plurality of the churches. You see the appointment of elders. And then verse 7 says, for an overseer, a, a deacon. Or not an overseer, sorry. Not a deacon. An overseer or a bishop. You could translate that word bishop. Episcopos. As God's steward must be above reproach. So the words are being used interchangeably. Presbyteros, the word for elder. And episcopos, the word for bishop. They're used interchangeably. John Stott makes the argument that the word elder has its origins in the synagogue and refers to the dignity of the office and that the word bishop has its roots in uh, the Greco-Roman world where there was like an overseer of a community and referred to the function of the office, refers to the function. Uh, there's the argument for ruling elders as well as to deacons. So let me ask some questions here. If there's no session in the local church, to whom do the responsibilities of elder fall to? Huh? It's a great question, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So in the PCA, if there are no elders in the church, there are still elders over the church who rule the church. We call that a provisional session, right? So when a church gets started, we're starting a church, we call it a mission church, and they have a provisional session appointed by the presbytery to still govern that church. When they get their own elders, that church becomes particularized and the provisional session ends. Travis? Let's say that the, your part of the denomination is really, really, really liberal. Are you forced to stay in that denomination? Yes. No. No. So the argument from the reformers uh, was also the argument made by our fathers who left the Southern Presbyterian Church in 1973. And the argument is this. In order for us to continue a true branch of the visible church, we must separate. And we are not separating from the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are separating from you in order that we might continue to be a true branch of the visible church. 
because their conscience is bound by the scripture and because no judicatory, no court of the church is infallible. Only God's word is. Yeah. If there are no deacons in the church, to whom do the diaconal responsibilities fall? The elders. That's right. Yep. Yep. Any other comments or questions? It's not too late to begin your Book of Church Order uh, reading plan for the year. <laughs> you should go ahead and start that, along with your Bible reading. It's very edifying. You can do your devotions from it in the morning. Be blessed by that. Let's pray. Huh? Ben has a question. Ben. The, the Anglican Church has bishops and bishops of archdiocese. So there, there, were, there were Anglicans at the Westminster Assembly. There's a radical separation, a radical sort of separationism that we see at times in church history. Um, this is during the Reformation, but the Anabaptists come to mind. There's sort of a radical separationist group, uh, but pre-Reformation, I'm not sure. The great debate really came in 1054 in the great schism of the church regarding who is the head of the church. So is the Bishop of Rome a preeminent or is he one among a plurality of bishops? And that's the debate in the Great Schism. I don't know, I don't know Ben. I'm sure there is, but I just nothing comes to mind. Most of those most of the prominent theologians in church histories held some sort of church office. Right? Like Augustine of Hippo. Why do we always call him Augustine of Hippo? Well, he held an office there, right? Yeah. Yeah, let's pray.